Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. How you doing, Jay? I'm, I'm okay. There's a lot happening <laughs> in the world. Yeah. All right. Well, should we? Uh, yeah. Let's should do we this. get this show on the road. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with uh, Dara Lynn and Jane Coaston, while uh, Ezra is. Uh, off in the desert. We just had the Labor Day weekend, and as a result, we we believe in taking holidays seriously here, so we did not manage to prepare a white paper for you. We're going to make a a return to the white paper segment to make it up for you all. And I wanted to say at the top, before we get into things, that the Weeds pop-up newsletter that you may recall from last winter is coming back. It's coming back for the midterms. It's going to be out uh, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Going to be looking at, you know, what's at stake in the midterm elections. Uh, you can sign up for that at vox.com slash weeds newsletter. And today we really wanted to talk about the same thing. Labor Day is sort of the traditional start of the campaign season. So we wanted to talk about what's going on in the midterms and not exclusively from a sort of horse race perspective, but in terms of what is concretely at stake here. I think we know, you know, generic ballot polls, they show Democrats are up. Exactly how much up you can debate according to, you know, how seriously you take the most recent polls or which ones. Uh, Models show that Democrats are up enough that they will probably win, uh, but they will not certainly win. Win the House. Win the House, yes. But it's not a certainty. My personal remorse about the 2016 election is that I felt like I personally and the profession as a whole spent too much time like crunching down on these predictive analytics and too little time just talking about like what was actually going to happen. Uh, it doesn't doesn't take so much time to argue the case both ways. So, you know, we'll just I think kind of leave it at that. Democrats more likely than not to take the House, but quite possibly won't. No one, as far as I can tell, is arguing that there's a substantial chance that Democrats are going to get veto-proof majorities in both chambers, which is kind of what matters, right? Like, there are two different conversations that we can have when we talk about what do you do with a chamber of Congress. And one of them is legislation, and one of them is oversight. Mm -hmm. And 
on legislation, it's, yes, you're going to have more ability to bring bills to the floor. There's going to be a certain amount of interest in proposing an agenda to counter the agenda that's coming out of the White House or coming out of, you know, the Senate if the Republicans retain a majority there. But when it comes to oversight, that is not something you need a veto-proof majority for. It's not even something you need both chambers of Congress for. The oversight committees operate independently. It's easier for the White House to stonewall an oversight effort if they have if they're not getting it from both chambers of Congress. That is, I think, a much more live question when we're talking about, you know, Democrats coming in, going from having access to neither branch of Congress to one branch, but not having the ability to actually pass bills over the veto pen of Donald Trump. Yeah, and this is something, you know, we've started to hear about. Uh, House Republicans apparently had a memo with like a list of all the stuff they think Democrats will investigate. It seems like Democrats now have their own list. The lists are long. I thought it was interesting that the Republicans did not just make a list of like BS right. that they thought they were going to be hit with. Some of the things on it, I think you could characterize that way. Uh, but some of them, I think, point to, you know, really fundamental questions of of corruption. Right. Yeah, I and, think and also policy stuff. Like they said that they would expect to see like hearings about like why did Puerto Rico have no electricity for 11 months? Um and like why did thousands of people die in Puerto Rico? Right. And, and you know, I'm and, and why at did the, the government take a year to f- even figure that out and right. how what happened exactly with the zero tolerance policy? I mean, there's still like unwinding the the separated children yeah, right. to an extent, yeah, right? And that's a great case of something where there have been a couple of oversight hearings because even Republicans are upset enough that they want somebody there providing answers. But a very aggressive oversight committee could be asking for a lot of internal communications, right. could be asking to meet with a much wider variety of people. You could really see an attempt to kind of produce a legislative report on this, not only is that going to probably give us more answers, but if you think about the number of agencies that are involved with something like that, that would be a substantial burden on the continued efforts of CBP and ICE to like detain people and to make policy changes that they're working on because they're also going to have to deal with this. It could be a substantial burden on the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is responsible for dealing with unaccompanied kids. Like the thing you hear from Republican staffers who were working under in the George W. Bush administration after 2006 is they will keep you from getting anything done because you will have to be responding to so many paper requests that it's going to be impossible for you to put your own agenda forward. And yeah, obviously that's like not the most neutral take on things, sure. but it certainly is something that a sufficiently aggressive operation could get to. And it's also, I mean, you know, there are real questions outstanding in this, right? I mean, so a story you would want to paint, I mean, particularly the child separation is a great example, right? Is like, what happened here in the specifics with the number of different Mm -hmm. agencies involved? Like, was there a moment where John Kelly, like, called people together and was like, obviously, this poses some questions about how the different agencies are going to work together. What's going on? Will you turn over a document from before you guys started separating families about here's how we're going to reunite them? And if you won't turn over that document, why should we believe such a document exists? And was there anyone in one of the relevant agencies, right? Like, did anyone at HHS ever write back and say, like, hey, guys— before you dump this on us, we need to know what the plan is for blah, blah, blah. And then, I mean, who knows, right? But th- this is like the kind of thing that you 
do when there's a big – I mean I, I think a fairly broad bipartisan agreement exists that this was not good right. and that it was not handled well. But Republicans have also not been interested in – really being thorough or driving the knife in, embarrassing key principles and and understanding their involvement. And then this goes, you know, all the way to the most basic stuff. Like in principle, the the Ways and Means Committee, if Democrats have a majority, can just say, we want to see Donald Trump's tax returns, right? Which would be a simple paper, right? I mean, in contrast to like an elaborate oversight investigation, right? right? right. Like it would not take the IRS very long to like find the records, unseal them, hand them over to Congress, but it would be a a huge deal. I mean, unless, I mean, it's theoretically possible that there's nothing in those tax returns and this is like all some weird MacGuffin. Uh, But I anticipate if Democrats have the majority, that will be revealed and it will, there will be something big in there. So do you anticipate it will be revealed or do you anticipate they'll ask? So something else that's interesting interesting is it's funny looking at this memo because it's like this greatest hits of the last two years that you kind of forgot about. They include Jared Kushner's ethics law compliance. Uh, Ah. (laughs) Because that reminds me of like, oh, remember Rob Porter? Whatever happened with that whole thing? And like James Comey's firing. Trump's proposed transgender ban for the military. Steven Mnuchin's business dealings. White House staff personal email use. And it's interesting because I'm just thinking about, you know, if you – the emails that, is what I had down as the cheap shot. Right. That's. I mean, but that's what you do. Like, sure, this is right. the same reason why, you know, when you wanted to go after Bill Clinton the first time, you went after the fact that one of his proposed nominees had an undocumented immigrant working in their home. Sure. And you went after ha- firing a bunch of people from the, the White House travel office. Right. Like, it's not because these things are, like, of critical, massive importance. It's because, you know, you've got a hammer and a lot of these could be nails. Yeah, I'm actually looking at a similar list, which is a list of subpoenas that Democrats on the House Oversight Committee have already tried to put in and that the Trump administration has refused to respond to and that, you know, the House majority hasn't been willing to back them up on. And it is the same kind of mix of there are various policy issues in here. You can pretty clearly see some people who are interested in kind of traditional transparency, like reports of sexual assault by employees, you know, retaliation against whistleblowers. And then you have various policy things that have been screwed up, like the Puerto Rico response. You also have some stuff about kind of generic corruption, you know, use of private flights, the sort of thing that, you know, we found out about from cabinet officials because it was reported really assiduously, not because there were any documents that, you know, were being handed over to Congress. And then there's kind of the auxiliary to the Mueller investigation stuff, right? right? There are questions about Cambridge Analytica. There are questions about kind of black ops, you know, social media operations, and also about interactions with various Russian agents. And that's kind of the the open question for me that maybe you guys have some insight into is it seems apparent that a lot of the reason Republicans want Mueller to wrap up the investigation this year is because they don't want Democrats in Congress when that report gets released. But Is there going to be any interest in pushing further than that investigation likely will or in kind of providing a public analog? Or is the question really just a binary impeachment or not? Because, like, impeachment seems like the elephant in the room here. There's definitely the, like, what is a good political answer? And then what is a good answer? Yes. And those are two separate things. I think that 
part of what the DNC has been putting forth since about May of this year is really hammering on the the GOP is corrupt angle. And this memo is part of it. And that's something voters have been responding to. And a lot of the polling is getting better as the year goes on and we get closer to midterms. But I think that impeachment, as we all know, is a political process, not a legal one. And I think that there is a chance that that is something people could get to. But I feel as if trying to guess on how or when feels a little bit, I don't know, it feels Mm -hmm. a little, it feels a little weird, though I would not be surprised if a lot of House Republicans are, they're very much trying to make it a, if Democrats take the House or Democrats get, you know, a hypothetical veto-proof majority, that impeachment will be like the first step. It'll be like, you know, they land at DCA, they arrive back in DC and start putting together the terms of impeachment. So I, I think there's, I mean, there's two scenarios, right, on uh, a Democratic majority and Mueller, right? One is a scenario, or I guess three. One is a scenario in which Trump fires Mueller after right. the midterms, right? In which case, I think obviously Adam Schiff is going to see a huge opportunity to, you know, take up the banner of resistance and say he needs to conduct this investigation that's been stymied. We know this is a guy who, you know, he's a smart guy, but like he he enjoys going on television a lot as it is. Um, if he obtains like actual subpoena power and also a good reason to become the lead figure on this story, yeah. like he will seize that. Now, another is Mueller's investigation just continues, right? And then I think the FBI or, or the special counsel's office is going to be saying like, don't disrupt the investigation mm-hmm. by doing a parallel investigation. And I think Democratic leaders, I mean, there's just, I think, a widespread misunderstanding about this. But like Democratic Party leaders on Capitol Hill have never been that enthusiastic about the Russia issue. They don't see it as, isn't they see it as bad, but it is not the thing that they would like to have. Right. There be right. critical Trump stories about, right? If they, right. if you assume a fixed quantity of like, negative for Trump column inches in the newspaper or on television. They would like to see more attention paid to even just a story like today in in Politico is like Trump had a new order to weaken worker safety provisions, Mm -hmm. right? They believe, I think not wrongly, that like those are the kind of stories that might matter to people who both might support Donald Trump but also might not support Donald Trump. Or at very least that like once they have a certain amount of power, given that Americans tend to respond to divided government with saying, why can't they all just get along? Having something in particular that they can point to and say – this is what we could do if we were in power. Right. Seems like a good so, argument. So, I mean, I, I think they will be trying to emphasize topics related to health care, right. topics related to corruption, you know, rather than emphasizing Russia type stuff. Of course, if Trump fires Mueller, that's another question. Then the third option is that Mueller wraps up his investigation, says, you know, who knows what he says, but doesn't say that Donald Trump. You know, does not have clear evidence of Donald Trump's personal involvement. Does not literally write Donald Trump committed impeachable offenses, period. But I mean, it's just even, you could even get like pretty like resistance enthusiastic about the Mueller inquiry, right? Like, say, like Manafort flips, Manafort uh, implicates like Jared and Don Jr., but then those guys both say, like, yeah, it's true. Like, we colluded with the Russians, but we didn't tell dad. So then, like, where, where does that leave you, right? Because obviously, from a special counsel's perspective, like, that's a pretty good investigation. Yeah. Like, you, you got a lot of big scalps. But, like, Democrats will still want to try to take down 
Trump and they will want to ask questions about the Helsinki meeting, Mm -hmm. right, and other things, things that happen after the campaign. But again, I assume that as long as the investigation is ongoing, they would rather let former FBI director and George W. Bush appointee Robert Mueller, like, carry that weight Mm -hmm. and, like, let them, you know, argue about healthcare and stuff. I also want to talk about, we should take a break, but I want to talk about the prospects for legislating under divided government, which I think are maybe too readily dismissed. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Okay, so a classic of political science written years ago by David Mayhew is called Divided We Govern. And it comes out with the somewhat counterintuitive conclusion that actually when Congress and the White House are controlled by different parties, broadly similar amount of substantial legislation gets passed one way or the other. This book, you know, like a lot of books that came out a while ago, one is always waiting for it to be disproven by subsequent events. But it turned out that the Pelosi-Bush Congress of 2007-2008 passed a lot of consequential bills. Uh, There was a small stimulus bill. There was, of course, the the very well-known TARP, uh, the less well-known Housing and Economic Recovery Act. And then it's easy to say, well, there was a financial crisis, right? Like, that's totally different. After Republicans took the House, though, they enacted the 
sequester bill, right, which was a major fiscal policy change, not a like grand bipartisan accomplishment, uh, but a big change and a big deal. They did a total rewrite of federal uh, K-12 education policy very quietly in 2015. They um, somehow banned those like little uh, hard rubby things in soaps. Um, that was microbeads. Yes. Oh, thank you, Jane. Yes, which I don't think one. If you had listened to a podcast before the 2014 midterms and said a national ban on microbeads and soap is going to be one of the outcomes of this, right? Um, yep. I'm not sure you would have predicted it, but like, that's just to make the meta prediction that like stuff tends to happen, right? And to look at some particular possibilities, like Donald Trump is a candidate. Well, he said a lot of things as a candidate, but like one of the things he said was that we should raise the minimum wage to $10 an hour. I kind of feel like, you know, if Democrats control the House, you know, now Democrats want to raise the minimum wage to 12 or 15 or, or whatever dollars an hour. But if 10's on the table, like maybe they pass that. Maybe they do that, right? And maybe Trump actually winds up regaining a little bit of his populist sheen as a result of the fact that with Paul Ryan not there to control the legislative agenda, if Democrats have very popular bills that don't touch on the core interests of the, like, Trumpian constituency, like, maybe he'll sign them. I I, I don't think that will happen. I'd, I'd like us to all remember the halcyon days of, like, January 2017. Yep. When, like, Pelosi and Schumer were like, well, maybe like this will be a thing and then they're like remember we had this whole remember infrastructure do you remember when we were going to have a week about infrastructure I do remember Infrastructure Week is actually post infrastructure bills Infrastructure Week is the White House trying to make infrastructure into a partisan issue because it had already become clear that it was going to fail as a bipartisan issue right but I mean of course he was going to fail as a bipartisan, right? So the idea, the Schumer-Pelosi idea that they could get Trump to flip on congressional Republicans and advance, in effect, parts of their agenda rather than parts of the coalition that was running Congress, like that didn't make any sense. But I'm saying like a Democratic House, right? So the question facing Donald Trump is like, do you do anything or is your entire two years just consist of responding to subpoenas or do you get a chance to sign some bills, give some speeches, slap some backs? Prior presidents have all ended up doing this. Like George W. Bush signed a minimum wage increase. I'm not sure that Donald Trump is more committed to the small government philosophy than George W. Bush was. So here is why, like, I, I don't, I'm not thinking the halcyon days of January 2017. I'm thinking the halcyon days of March 2017, when it seemed what like, March? it seemed like Republicans were going to pass, you know, a major Obamacare repeal bill because they had unified government and it didn't seem that hard. And the reason that we've had divided government making major legislation is because Bush and Pelosi could get into a room or Obama and Reid and Boehner could get into a room and like come up with a plan that they could then get their representative constituencies to support. Donald Trump is not a person in the room who is making those deals and then selling them. Donald Trump much more often is kind of peeking in from the windows saying, I don't like this thing or I like that thing, and then bringing large swaths of Republican congressmen with him saying, I'm not going to support a bill that the president doesn't back. Like, it is not at all clear to me that a negotiation that starts with Donald Trump saying, how can I actually get something through Congress, makes it through to a bill being on Donald Trump's desk that he signs without Donald Trump changing his mind on several occasions about what he actually wants or doesn't want to be in the bill. 
Like we ha- we literally have not seen any evidence that he can get out of his own way on this. Hmm. Yeah, I think it, it's interesting a lot of times when we have conversations about Trump in a way that implies that he will do something or act in a different way from what he has done, Mm -hmm. that there keeps being this like, ah, he'll secretly become presidential or he'll try and get out of his own way. And based on the evidence so far, I don't think that's going to happen. Right. Like, I guess the one occasion where I can see a bipartisan deal making happening is on issues where Republicans in Congress are likely to join with Democrats in a veto-proof majority without being sure that Donald Trump is going to sign a bill. And like, I don't know, what is that, trade? Like something where Democrats actually care enough to push a bill forward and Republicans disagree with Trump and disagree strongly enough that they're willing to risk getting primaried over it or they don't think it's going to be that important. That actually, that could be the opposite, right? So like Trump's views on trade to the extent that one can characterize them are in line to an extent with some Democrats, right? But what Trump has been doing on trade is governing around Congress in a way that is odd, uh, but seems to be like what he could come up with, right? Like based on the information available to Trump, Trump cannot get Congress to act on trade. So Trump is engaging in executive unilateralism. If Nancy Pelosi, who I would not say, quote unquote, agrees with Donald Trump about trade, but Nancy Pelosi has always been critical of the bipartisan consensus on trade in some ways that overlap with criticisms Donald Trump has made, it's at least theoretically possible that she could have a legislative proposal in that field that would appeal to Trump and to Lighthizer and to whoever else they have up here, Peter Navarro. And this is a classic Democratic Party, congressional Democratic Party issue that like we have too many free trade agreements and they are bad and we need more protective tariffs. Um, I'm not sure that you would see anything on it. I don't know that there's exactly the policymaking firepower on either side of that negotiation to quite come up with anything. But it again, it seems like if people on both sides of it want to come out of two years of a Democratic House and a Republican White House saying that they have done something, some kind of trade revision is pretty high up there. I think we disagree about why Trump has engaged in the trade tactics that he has. I think that it seems pretty clear that Donald Trump isn't patient with legislation, that he thinks it's too slow, that we know from like the inside, you know, Kremlinological accounts of the White House that Donald Trump gravitates toward things that he can just do, right? That's why he really likes pardons. That's why he's issued a bunch of stuff as executive orders that could be agency memos. And it's why, you know, he's kind of used this national security exemption to like construct an entire trade agenda. I don't know that if you say to Donald Trump, would you like something more lasting that is going to take longer to accomplish and that's going to require more compromise, he's actually going to pick that, especially because Donald Trump is turning around and telling his base that he's already accomplished everything. Like, it doesn't actually matter to him that Congress hasn't done anything in the last two years. I'm such a divided government optimist. (laughs) I'm rosy. Apparently. What about immigration, though? I mean— I don't know that you have a more like more urgency in Congress than you had when Trump announced the rescission of DACA in September 2017. Like the number of people in both parties, leadership in both parties saying something needs to happen and it needs to happen in the next six months. And the low to non-existent number of people saying eh, right. like that 
was the best opportunity that they had. And it failed spectacularly, not least because Donald Trump tried to wedge his entire immigration agenda onto, well, we're giving up this one tiny thing that I haven't even admitted I don't want to see. Like, I just, I but think actually, we have to have a different theory of what's what's happening on DACA right now is that we... Uh, yeah, I've totally lost the plot. Yeah. On, on Friday, the, the judge who was expected to issue a nationwide injunction against DACA and therefore put us in like the nationwide injunction twilight zone where there were simultaneous conflicting ones declined to do that because Mm -hmm. he said that even though he agreed it was unconstitutional, it probably wasn't okay to wait for the program to be in place for six years and then say, if it continues one more day, it will cause us unconscionable harm. So we're probably looking at a Supreme Court battle in like toward the end of this current session, so probably spring 2019. And in the meantime, current DACA recipients can apply for renewals. So that kind of gives a lot of breathing room. And, you know, I've definitely heard some optimists saying if Democrats take one or both chambers in 2019, the upcoming Supreme Court battle is certainly going to create a certain amount of urgency. Maybe Democrats will be willing to pass a bill and then there will be a lot of pressure on Senate Republicans to do something. Like, it's theoretically possible that there's a path forward there, but I don't really see Republicans saying, well, we have to agree with the Democratic majority and not get credit for doing something right. to help people when they couldn't get their act together in 2017. Well, and here's where the changes in the in the Senate also matter, right? Because Republicans seem to have pretty good chances of picking up maybe one or two Senate seats. I mean, if they if it's an overall good climate, even more than that, but but even in a pretty good climate for Democrats, they might gain a Senate seat or two. And definitely John McCain and Jeff Flake are not going to be around anymore. Yep. And that was two of the Republicans who were most committed to the immigration issue will both likely be replaced by – well, it's possible that Flake will be replaced by a Democrat. Uh, but right. if they are replaced by Republicans, are going to be replaced by Trump-era Republicans, right? So like Martha McSally, who, who's running for Flake's seat, she's not like in her bones immigration hawk. Right. But she is someone who is going with the flow, right? right. And yeah, the, she's, the Republican she's not going to take a stand against ending family-based migration the way Jeff Flake was, for sure. example. But I mean she is, she is coming up in the Trump-era Republican Party yeah. and she is on board with it. Right. If the Republican Party was going in a different direction, I think it's pretty clear that she would go in that different direction, too. It's like a this is just like normal member of Congress stuff. Like she right. doesn't really care. It's not her signature issue. Right. But you're and not like, going to get a bipartisan deal made without a bipartisan deal maker. Right. We know Mitch McConnell isn't going to be that person. We know that John Cornyn is going to try to be that person. But John Cornyn has tried to get into literally every immigration proposal for the last decade and has never been like remained at the table when a bipartisan right. bill passes. So, the- so like it's really easy for and frankly in 2013, you know, and we discussed this in the McCain episode last week, like John McCain was the reason that John Cornyn wasn't in the room for that. Right. So there just aren't the people saying, no, we need to have a good faith negotiation on this issue in the chamber anymore. Right. So we're getting further from a sort of Senate that could make that kind of bipartisan deal. Yes. I, I think it's it's pretty clear under almost any feasible election right. scenario. So that leaves us with, you know, not a ton of prospects for that, but something that just has to happen is the annual appropriation cycle, which I mean, I think an interesting thing to look for, right? There's been a ton of buzz in the commentary zone about 
abolish ICE, which obviously ICE is not going to be abolished in 2019, but at least the short-term tactical purpose of that is to create a scenario in which left-wing House Democrats from safer seats are going to feel pressure or at least say that they feel pressure to not agree to lavish immigration enforcement appropriations. Right. I mean, there is a super fun nerd dynamic going on uh, over the last few years where ICE gets you know, gets money to maintain a certain amount of beds and detention facilities. They will outpace themselves on spending uh, in order to maintain more beds and detention facilities. And then they'll go back to Congress and say, oops, we ran out of money. We need more money. And then they'll ask for the next year for the number of beds that they actually maintained the previous year rather than the number that they were authorized for. So, like, it's definitely possible to imagine that cycle getting called into question. And if you can't detain as many people, you can't deport them quite as efficiently. You have all kinds of questions about, you know, do you really want to go after people living in the interior of the United States who have the risk of absconding if you don't detain them, yada, yada, yada. Like, it would put a substantial wrench in the kind of ceiling of immigration enforcement that in theory the Trump administration could be building toward after a couple of years of having to rev up the machine after Obama revved it down. And I, mean, and this is I don't think revved it down is like automotively legitimate. But I mean, this is a, a significant political, because like the basic dynamic in Congress around immigration has been that more money for enforcement is like an easy ask of Democrats. Not necessarily something they will do for free, but it's like, okay, if we can get immigration policy concessions, then definitely we will sign up for a lot more money for enforcement. Or if we can get more money for things that aren't immigration enforcement, because in general, Democrats like to spend money, but Republicans don't. So when Republicans decide that they do want to spend money on something, right, whether it's the military or immigration enforcement, then Democrats generally are not like, no, I won't do that. They're sort of yes, but. Right. Right? Yes. So they got – Trump wanted a big increase to, to lift the defense spending caps. Um, and Democrats agreed to do it if he would also lift domestic spending caps, right? So Republicans will say, we want to hire like 80 billion new Border Patrol agents. And Democrats will say, sure, but we also need a new hospital somewhere, right? And, and it gets done. Again, like the short-term tactical objective of – abolish ICE is to make enforcement money tough ask that Democrats either say no to flat out or demand concessions that are directly related yes. to immigration enforcement rather than making it something they they trade intermodally. So, you know, how many Democrats will be feeling that pressure, I think, is an open question. Not Certainly not all of them. But there it could was be a, momentum building on this before Republicans took the House back in 2014. Right. But there, I think, will be a new factor in yeah. negotiations is that whoever leads the Democrats in that will be saying, hey, look, you know, if I do this, I'm going to lose whatever votes unless you give me something amazing. And obviously Trump is not going to want to give them anything amazing on immigration policy. Other congressional Republicans aren't going to want to give them something amazing on other domestic spending priorities. And then you're going to have the White House pushback because rightly or wrongly, it's good. Like Trump loves this issue. Yeah. Right? Like what Trump would really enjoy a political clash that is about Democrats not wanting to fund detention beds and then saying that their reluctance to fund the detention beds is the thin edge of the wedge of the movement to abolish ICE and create open borders. Right? Now, just because Trump wants it doesn't mean that the people on the left pushing the fight 
are wrong, but it's clear that there are some things that like people on both sides would rather not deal with. And this is something that the left has been trying to get Democrats to take on and that the White House clearly wants Democrats to take on yep. and should be, if Democrats are able to control the legislative agenda, a major flashpoint just because both sides want to fight about it. Yeah, I think that it's weird to talk about this in a way that puts it in any state of reality, because I'm just still thinking, like, we're talking about something that is so, I don't know, it's it's difficult to be having these conversations on September 4th, 2018, what I'm just thinking, like, by September 20th, what happens? By the end of this month, what happens? And, on, like, on a bigger stage, it's just so... I don't know. Having conversations about what I expect Democrats or Republicans to do feels so impossible to do. And I think that the conversation about where this goes, I don't know. I'm just I'm so uncertain about everything. It's so challenging to talk about this because I just keep thinking, like, what if Mueller announces something? What if something else happens? I'm just I don't know. Okay, I'm I so think we should of, take a break and then kind of dive into this because yeah. I think that there are a lot of feelings and meta feelings right. around the predictability of polls that we should probably get into. I think that's important. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Okay, so yeah, I hear this. I I think that there are a couple of of attitudes to take here. One is what Matt laid out at the beginning of the episode that like y'all our listeners are not going to single-handedly change the course of the election. It's not like you're reading polls so that you can know how best to invest your gajillions of dollars. I mean, right. look, if any gajillion dollar donors feel like telling us that they are, in fact, <laughs> listeners of the weeds, I am sure we have thoughts for you. But there's also the the fact that they are voters. And we want to make sure that y'all as voters understand to the best of our ability what you are voting for when you go in there and pull the lever in early November. So like, I think that that is kind of the, an approach to take. Then the question becomes, how much time do you spend on various scenarios, which of course feeds back to, well, how likely do you find various scenarios to be? But what I'm hearing in your question, Jane, is this underlying how much can we really trust that even though Democrats have had the lead in the generic ballot, that even though right now they have a massive lead in the generic ballot, that even right. though the conventional wisdom is that Republicans are not in great position because it's always an out party, you know, yeah. out party advantage and there is a lot of mobilization against Trump, yada, yada, that like, can we really, after 2016, assume that there won't be, you know, late events that will change the game? And my answer right. to that is like, 
No, but also we couldn't figure that out in 2016 either. No. It was really, really hard to tell. Like, I remember writing a post saying, hey, we looked at these state polls and it looks like the Comey letter about what was found on Anthony Weiner's computer didn't move people in Wisconsin. And like, that was very dumb. That was a dumb post for us to write. That was like a dumb thing for us to say we knew. But if we can't say we know anything, then we end up focusing too much on what are the probabilities that various outcomes will happen rather than what happens in early January when a new Congress takes office. Right. You know, which is obviously the much more important thing. And I think it's it's worth noting that while the individual events that might take place between now and November might change things somewhat, I would argue that a lot of the sentiment towards this Congress specifically is kind of baked in, and the sentiment is not good. It is not happy. But I don't see, unless there is a hypothetical, like a sweep, like if it's something like veto-proof majorities in both the House and Senate, which is unlikely to happen, I feel as if that we're basically left kind of doing a bizarro 2017 again, except with presidential implications. That doesn't sound very fun to me. But what do you mean by that? I mean that there are a lot of Republicans who will not want to have any sort of bipartisan compromise because they want to keep the support of the president. And so let's say hypothetically Democrats take the House, but it's not like a sweeping veto-proof victory. Then you're going to have a lot of kind of the Trumpian Republicans who are just like their only goal in life is to keep Trump showing up at their campaign rallies by basically taking stands like, you're going to see a random House Republican decide that it's time for him to do a, a floor speech about how the NFL is bad. And I think— Wait, we haven't seen that yet? Please, let's not wish this into I'm existence. I'm sure there have been. They do all kinds of floor speeches. But, you know, you're going to see, I think, more of that, just more of kind of the embrace of gridlock, which, you know, I think is a strategy. And I know, obviously, I know that there are— you know, there'll be spending bills and arguments to be had over that. But I just don't see why, you know, I'm aware that if you work for the GOP, your position is that this has been an extremely productive Congress. But I do not work for the GOP and I do not have to put out messaging for the GOP. So I do not have to embrace that argument. I just see a lot of 2017 again. But yeah, so, I mean, I guess my question is, like, if, if we're talking about absolute gridlock, like how many government shutdowns do we have? Well, I don't know. Maybe one. I mean, (laughs) but I think it's worth talking about the possibility. You know, 538 says 20% chance Republicans keep the House. Um, I think the Economist's quantitative model has it at like 26%, but they maybe didn't update with today's Washington Post poll. But it's not like the craziest thing in the world, right? I mean, if somebody was like, there's a 20% chance your plane's going to crash. Uh, you you wouldn't get on the plane, right? Absolutely um, not. So we have to have the election, but you know you shouldn't just uh, just discount it. And you know what happens then, right? It's interesting to me that the conservative policy infrastructure, you know, the the think tanks, et cetera, I always sort of keep my tabs on. They've largely gone dark in the course of 2018, mm-hmm. right? You used to hear a lot when Barack Obama was president about grand plans to privatize Medicare, right? And there was like a Paul Ryan version of this, but there was like a, you know, like anything that happens in Congress, there's like a think tank 
right. right. Part of the iceberg that's below the waterline. And that was still alive. Like in the winter of 2016, 2017, Paul Ryan was trying to say like, well, we all agree we need to repeal Obamacare and Obamacare changed Medicare. So Medicare is part of Obamacare repeal. He seems to have been talked out of that. And that seems like dead in the intellectual infrastructure. There was this big conceptual critique of Dodd-Frank. Right? Because when Dodd-Frank passed by a narrow partisan majority, the official Republican Party position wasn't, oh, the financial crisis was totally fine and we should change nothing. But it also wasn't this Obama proposal is good. So they had like their own proposals, right? That's just kind of gone away. Like, I don't know, right? So like Trump has just appointed business-friendly regulators and they're humming along. But where there is work done, right, is on what they are calling welfare reform, right, which is basically putting work requirements on everything, right? And so Trump's HHS is putting that forward. They talked about doing it in a 2018 reconciliation bill. They ultimately decided not to. But if they hold Congress, that's like the idea that they have on the shelf. And at least some people will, you know, want to push it, particularly if they have an expanded Senate majority. And then I think the president is going to want to push this whole maybe U.S. attorneys should not be investigating me kind of angle, right? I mean, right now we're just at like the level of tweets and I think like savvy conservative commentators will get like really mad at me if I suggest we should take it seriously that Donald Trump keeps saying in public that what he thinks should happen is that the Justice Department should be a narrow tool of Trump's personal interests. Right. But you know, I, what he's saying that essentially like two House Republicans have been indicted and the implication is that those two House Republicans who were among Trump's earliest supporters should not be indicted because they're Republicans. It's interesting because, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to conservatives and like working with people who are at these conservative think tanks. And a funny phenomenon I note is that a lot of time, like heritage or something, they seem to talk around the president, but not about the president. And so it very much is a sense that when you hear from heritage and they want to talk about what they would want to get done hypothetically in Congress in 2019, they talk about this in a way that somehow like, Mike Pence's president, and that they can totally count on the president of the United States not to tweet something stupid or do something stupid or say something stupid. And it's interesting because I really think that the biggest challenge to the conservative infrastructure getting what it wants to get done done is that the president is, one, not particularly interested in that kind of thing. You know, I think that the brass tacks of what conservative policymakers want to get done you know, that's of interest to a Paul Ryan. You'll notice Paul Ryan is retiring. You'll notice that, you know, more than 20 Republicans are retiring because I think that for many of them, and it's not because they want to spend time with their families. It's because they they recognize that Trump is not just a fill-in-the-blank Republican, whether you like that or not. And I think that that makes it challenging for conservatives from a policy perspective to try and forecast what they could or couldn't get done because they need to know what Trump would be willing to make calls for or show up for, because he cannot just be, you know, you can talk him into something, but he can easily talk himself out of something. Right. I mean, the flip side of this is how much can Congress get in the way of Trump attempting to improperly influence, like, the actions taken by the Department of Justice. And, like, 
I am really of two minds on the how seriously do you take Trump question. I think we have two data points so far. One is that Donald Trump has been venting for the last 14 plus months that the Department of Justice isn't doing what he wants it to do. The other is that the Department of Justice still hasn't done what Trump wants it to do in like most regards. Jeff Sessions has given a tiny, tiny bit of ground on like allowing some show investigations. But for the most part, and you know, there's a lot of information we don't have, although in a White House this like leaky, it seems plausible that absence of evidence kind of is evidence of absence in this case. Like, but Trump improperly influencing the DOJ, there have to be a bunch of switches that get thrown. There has to be, you know, Trump talking to the attorney general who talks to somebody who talks to a U.S. attorney. We don't have any evidence of Trump trying to make end runs and going straight to U.S. attorney's offices, even though in theory that's something that they could try to do. So the question becomes, A, does Trump fire Jeff Sessions? B, what happens if Trump fires Jeff Sessions? We have some very important data points there, which are that Lindsey Graham is probably going to be the next head of the Senate Judiciary Committee unless Dems take the Senate back. And he is totally cool with Jeff Sessions getting fired after the midterms for reasons that are that may have something to do with Graham being mad at Sessions over criminal justice reform, but also appear to be Lindsey Graham is friends with Donald Trump now. Mm. And C, if you have a separate attorney general who is that person and like how much are they going to not just do what Trump asks but pressure the people down the line? I, we've really seen that the internal culture of independence at DOJ, specifically though not just at the FBI, is pretty dang robust and that there aren't a lot of people there who are super enthused about following orders that they find to be improper coming in, in from the top. So I do think that it's a very live question, even if Trump gets to appoint an attorney general who we can only assume he's vetting for, would you fire Bob Mueller if I asked you to, whether the, you know, the U.S. attorneys who went after Duncan Hunter would be willing to say, ah, yeah, good point. You know, maybe we shouldn't go after him because he is a Republican congressman and we technically serve at the, you know, mercy of the president. You know, right. Here's here's my concern in this space, right? Not to disagree about the technicality and stuff, but I remember the 2016 election. And I remember the shock it was to the political culture of the United States when Donald Trump got 46 percent of the vote and his incumbent got 48 percent of the vote. But due to some quirks of electoral geography, he became president, right? Like it was declared not by hardcore right-wingers, not by Trump enthusiasts, right? But but by like every single neutral media outlet that Donald Trump getting millions fewer votes than Hillary Clinton proved – that people who thought Donald Trump would be a bad president were fundamentally out of touch with how the American people work, right? And Republican members of Congress who the day before the election were saying, I will not vote for Donald Trump, right. immediately like lined up wholeheartedly behind him. And now there's this like weird alternate reality where like like Ben Sass occasionally tweeting disagreement yeah. with occasional things Trump does marks him out as like a like a Trump resistor, right? right? But like Ben Sass and Mike Lee and like over a dozen Senate Republicans were like, I will not vote for Donald Trump. That was their position. But then as soon as he won, like victory forgives many sins it's in true. politics. And I think that if after a year of Democrats are favored to take the House, Democrats are favored to take the House, Democrats are favored to take the House, in fact, Republicans hold the House, that the impact that that will have on the myth of Donald Trump yeah. will be overwhelming. And that the idea of institutional resistance to Trump's will 
is going to really alter. Because instead of having some Republican senators carping from the sidelines, maybe Trump shouldn't tweet this stuff. It's like a banana republic. It's going to go the other way, that Trump is going to find that he has a posse on Capitol Hill who is like saying to the Justice Department, you know, who who are better at certain aspects of politics than Trump is and are like, we're going to have a hearing about what's going on at the San Diego field office. Mm. You know what I mean? Because it's going to prove, just like Trump losing the popular vote but winning the Electoral College proved that he was in touch with middle America – if they lose the House popular vote by four points and hold the House majority narrowly, that's going to that's gonna further prove it, right? And like, you know, Flake and McCain and Corker yeah. are going to be gone. Paul Ryan's going to be gone. Everything in Republican Party politics is going to be a working toward Trump kind of dynamic. And that's going to really change this kind of stuff. Right now, I think Republicans are hedging just as they hedged during 2016, which is like, they are seriously concerned that Trump's antics are going to cost them at the polls, right? And they don't yeah. want to fight with Trump because that doesn't work. But they also think that Trump may be rapidly discredited and they want to move on after that, right? But if they win, Trump's the future. Trump is remarkably similar in a way to how you would think about, say, like, Tim Tebow playing for the Broncos in that you think it's a terrible idea and then he beats Steelers and suddenly it's a great idea. Uh-huh. And so and, and the fact that there isn't an apparent like theory of the case there isn't right. you can't predict this happening just adds to the mystique like he clearly is in touch with something that we don't understand. Right because right. if his poll numbers had just gotten good 8 months ago right. we'd be like well the strengthening economy lifted Trump's poll numbers. Yeah, right. But I think that that really goes to the, you know, the power of the whole this is how you get Trump thing, which is something you say when you yourself are not entirely sure how we got Trump. You know, it's yep. probably not because someone got specifically mad about the thing that you're also mad about because in general other people aren't mad about the same things you're mad about. But I do think that something I, I, I like repeating again and again and will continue to do so is that – In office, Trump has moved towards congressional Republicans, which means it's a lot easier for congressional Republicans to move towards him. You know, when there wasn't a giant infrastructure bill, there wasn't, you know, the kind of, you know, some maybe Democrats thought that they could get Trump to do, that didn't happen. You know, he has governed like a Republican, which I think if you're a Republican, then that's great. If you're a Democrat, well, you're not as big a fan of it. And so I think in a hypothetical world where you know, you're still going to see some Republicans who will critique the president, but largely they're not going to do so, not just because they don't entirely understand why Trump's base is so strong with him, but because he keeps doing things that they like. You know, they like deregulation. They like getting judges approved who they approve of. You know, they like the things he does, so they'll continue to support him. And that's why, you know, you saw the most Republicans getting upset about tariffs or, you know, that's something Sass has talked about. That's something several other congressional Republicans have talked about ad nauseum because that's something, an issue upon which Trump is strongly divided from the majority of Republicans. But even on that, they'll kind of let it go for now because everything else is fine. I think that a lot of conservatives and Republicans have basically been like, OK, if you somehow – excised Twitter from who Trump is or what Trumpism is, this would be great. This would be a great Republican presidency. The economy is doing 
fantastic. Everybody's happy. And so I very much think that it really is more a story of Trump becoming more of a Republican than Republicans becoming more like Trump. For the record, if there are things that we only touched on in this episode briefly that you are extremely concerned someone needs to go into more detail about before between now and November, do not worry. We are not leaving the midterms no. unaddressed for the next few months. It's going to happen. There will be more. There's going to be a whole Medicaid episode. Ooh, There's going to be really? so much is happening. Things are in the works. Excellent. We, we, we've got plans. <laughs> we know what we're doing. Yes, absolutely. We absolutely know what we're doing. Uh, but really, this is a great time to hop into the Weeds Facebook group and, uh, you know, let us know what you are interested in coming into the midterms. We can look into it and plan some stuff around that. Also, you know, how you're feeling, your own speculations about polls, which is kind of irresistible. Check out the Weeds newsletter for a text-based format of Weedsy midterms commentary. It's fantastic. And other than that, thanks for listening. Thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and the Weeds will be back on Friday was something a little bit different and pretty special. Mm-hmm.